0: page 706 is where we're going to be. And so this morning what I'm wanting us to do together is I'm wanting you and I to just honestly sit under the weight of God's Word and to wrestle with both the beauty and the complexity, the frustrating and yet necessary path of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah of the world. I want us to To just sit under the weight of the word and to to wrestle with the journey that Jesus uh, went on himself in all of its beauty and complexity and in all of its uncertainty and all of its frustration and in all of its necessity because I think what Jesus himself and Mark uh, chapter 8 is going to try to make very clear to us that this morning we're not just looking at the path of our leader, we're getting a glimpse of the path of his followers, and it's not until we embrace the path of the leader that we can in turn embrace the journey of the followers. And so maybe you remember this game that you probably played when you were a kid, Follow the Leader. And if you didn't play Follow the Leader, sorry, you were so deprived as a child. But the, the game was so simple, right? There was one rule. Just play along with me, class. What was the one rule of Follow the Leader? It was to... Follow the leader. Let's try that again like we're not dead. It was to follow the leader. Some of you are still too cool. It's okay. But you know, there's the one rule of follow the leader. And uh, the, the goal was you did what the leader did. If she stood up, you stood up. If she sat down, you sat down. If they jumped on one leg, you jumped on one leg. If they raised a hand, you raised a hand. And the goal was that you would just do what the leader had done. And if you've been with us, we've been in this journey through Mark now for six months. And in so many ways, the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel feels like one big game of follow the leader. Jesus shows up to these ordinary people just like you and I in the midst of their 9 to 5 jobs. Most of them were in their late teens or early 20s. They had families. They had a future. They had financial security. And Jesus shows up to this group of ordinary people just like you and I. And he extends this, this very um, life-changing, radical, awe-inspiring call on their life. And he, he gives them that invitation with two simple words. He says, follow me. He says, leave behind uh, the fishing boats, leave the nets, leave your families, leave your friends, leave your sense of security, come and follow me. And uh, I had grown up in church, I'd been a part of church for almost 25 years before I ever noticed the significance of those two words in the call of Jesus upon the life of his followers. Jesus does not show up at their work and say, hey, leave your fishing business and join an assembly of people that look like you and think like you and think rightly about me for the rest of your life. Jesus doesn't say, leave it all behind and come and sing songs or consume more sermons about me. Those things are not wrong. But Jesus says, the call, the mandate on your life is to follow me, to go where I go, to do what I do, to live as I live, to love as I loved. And for three years, this invitation from Jesus to these ordinary people, not only was it enticing, but it brought with it all sorts of benefits. you know the story if you've been with us they they leave their families and their friends and their future they leave it all behind they follow Jesus and for three years they get a front row seat to the miraculous outpouring of God's presence in the midst of a very broken world and for three years the choice to follow made a lot of sense and then you get to Mark chapter 8 and it's like Jesus is driving the school bus and he takes a sharp U-turn and everybody's getting whiplash and they're freaking out and they're, they're trying to figure out because all of a sudden Jesus says, I'm the leader and you're the follower and the path that the leader is getting ready to go on is not going to be as enjoyable to follow for a season. And you've got to decide, will you keep following when the path that the leader is taking is not the path that you want to adventure down? So the disciples, they find themselves here in Mark chapter 8. We've been in this chapter for the last few weeks. And if you were here last week, Aaron just gave us the first half of this conversation just brilliantly and beautifully unpacked. The first part of the conversation. I want to go back and read what we read last week just to catch us up to speed. If you didn't hear the podcast, go back and, and listen to it because it's full of insights. But I want to give us the big picture. Mark chapter 8. We're going to start in verse 27. These are the words that we looked at last week. It says Jesus and his disciples or his followers or his students or his friends they went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi and on the way Jesus asked them who do people say that I am and they replied some say that you're John the Baptist Others say that you're Elijah. Still others think that you're one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus said. Who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. I don't know if you write in your Bibles or highlight in your Bibles or underline, but that word Messiah is huge. It is, it is the kind of the linchpin of this whole conversation. And Aaron did a, a lot of work last week helping us understand it. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And he did this because he knew they still didn't understand what it was that they had just said about him keeps going. From this point on, Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, that he must be killed, and three days later would rise again. And Jesus spoke plainly about these things. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. What a boneheaded move. Jesus said, uh, Peter said, Jesus, I'm not sure you know what you're getting ready to get into, bro. And he begins to rebuke Jesus, and Jesus responds he turned and looked at the disciples and he rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. He said, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And so let me catch up with the story. Jesus has offered the invitation. I'm the leader. Will you follow me? For three years they're following Jesus. And Jesus takes him on this field trip to the region, that this area called Caesarea Philippi. And if you want to imagine Caesarea Philippi, it was... Kind of like Las Vegas in the height of its decadence or the red light district of Amsterdam. What happened in Caesarea Philippi stayed there unless it was a disease and you brought that home with you. And kind of the the hallmark of Caesarea Philippi was this uh, attraction known as the Gate of Hades. It was this place where the people during Jesus' day would gather and they believed that all of the demonic forces of the spiritual underworld would come out of the underbelly of the earth into the world of human beings at this place called Caesarea Philippi. And a few times every year, people would gather, and they'd have drunken orgies. They'd worship demons, and they'd ask for the darkness to enter into the world. And so do you remember that story in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus has his disciples here in Caesarea Philippi, and he says, what I'm getting ready to do through you and in you, even the gates of Hades can't stop. And Jesus was giving them this like brilliant visual aid. And it's here in the midst of this field trip, in the, the darkness of their surrounding culture, that the disciples, for the first time in their life, are going to see the light of who Jesus actually is. And they make this profound proclamation. Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And they say, you are the Messiah. And Aaron really unpacked this last week, but I want to at least give us a handle. This, this word Messiah was loaded Jewish people had been waiting for thousands of years for the Messiah to come and this idea of Messiah carried with it two big ideas. One was the idea of position and the other was the idea of purpose. And So the Messiah was someone who was going to have the greatest position on earth at least in the eyes of the Jewish people. He would be the king of kings, the leader of leaders, the presidents of presidents. No one would have more power or authority or significance than the Messiah. And so the disciples look at Jesus and he says, who do you think that I am? And they say, you're the Messiah. And Jesus goes, okay, you understand my position. The most powerful one in all creation. But Messiah didn't just carry this idea of position. It also carried this idea of purpose. Because they believed that the Messiah would use his position to bring about the purposes of God in the world. To make all things right. To restore the brokenness that had come into the world with sin. To correct the evils of injustice. To uplift and encourage the broken and hurting. And the disciples go, you are the Messiah. And Jesus looks at them and he says, you understand my position, King of Kings. You understand my purpose to make all things right in the world. But then he begins to clarify something for them. He says, but you do not understand my path. And it's going to be the path of the Messiah that will bother the disciples. It'll be the path of the disciple that will frustrate his followers. It will be the path of the disciples that will cause many to turn back. And it will be the path of the Messiah that will cause many of you to quit as well. And Jesus says, it is not enough to embrace my position as king of all kings. It is not enough to embrace my uh, purpose As the reconciler of all things, unless you embrace the path by which those come. And it says, from this point on, Jesus began to talk to them about the cross. He says, the way that my position and my purposes are going to come into the world will be through suffering and rejection and death. And Peter goes, Jesus, do you know how insane that sounds? Jesus, do you realize what a terrible campaign strategy this is? Like, you don't change the world by suffering and dying. That's not the way that it works. And Jesus says, you cannot have the position and you cannot have the purpose until you embrace the path. And Jesus knew that until his disciples fully embraced the path of their leader, they would never have the courage to own the path that they would walk as followers. And Jesus begins to lay it before them. And he turns to the crowds, and he turns to the disciples, and he begins to make this clear statement, this clear teaching that we have so clearly learned how to reject and ignore. And this is what he says. Look at verse 34 and verse 35. It says, then Jesus called the crowd to him along with the disciples. He says, whoever wants to be my followers, here's the deal. Here's the mandate. And I love this. I want you to notice before we keep going. That Jesus turns to both the crowd and his disciples. In other words, Jesus is saying, what I'm getting ready to say is not just a teaching for the spiritually elite. It's not just a teaching for the super Christians. It's not just a teaching for those that are really committed. Jesus is saying, this is a teaching for anyone interested in seeing the things of God, seeing the love of God flow into the brokenness of the world through an ordinary life just like yours. A few years ago, I watched this stunning documentary on Mount Everest, and it was talking about the things that the climbers have to do at different levels, at different altitudes to keep going on the journey. And at every new base camp, at every new level, there's new equipment, there's new gear, there's new things that your body has to acclimate if you're going to keep making the journey. And Jesus here is looking at the disciples and he says, hey, for three years you've been following me. You've gone where I've gone, you've done what I've done, you've seen the dead healed or raised, you've seen the sick healed, you've seen the storms uh, calmed. But if you want to keep walking the mountain, if you want to keep climbing to higher altitudes, if you want to keep knowing God in a way that is richer and more joy-filled and significant, then there are some things that you need to embrace as my followers. And Jesus is going to give us three imperatives here. These are not suggestions. These are commands. Jesus is saying, this is the gear that you need to take if you're going to climb the mountain. This is the posture you need to own if you're going to be my friend. This is what you need to own in your heart if you're going to be my follower. And the words that he begins to speak are so tough to receive. In verse 34, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple... They must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life, verse 35, must lose their life. And whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. And Jesus says, the mandatory gear, if you want to keep making the climb, is that you as my follower embrace the path of your leader. And this path will involve self-denial. It will involve the embracing of your cross, and it will involve the laying down of your vision for what it means to be fully alive. It'll involve self-denial, it'll involve the embracing of your cross, it will involve you laying down your vision of what it means to be fully alive. So let's start with self-denial, as if all of these aren't hard enough. Let's just take them one at a time. Is there anything harder than self-denial? I'll give you just kind of a a definition of self-denial to maybe put us all on the same page. Self-denial is willingly laying down that which is rightfully yours for the sake of Jesus and the good of those who don't know him. (laughs) Self-denial... is willing, willingly laying down that which is rightfully yours for the sake of Jesus and the good of those that don't yet know him. So Jesus is going to say, listen, if you want the love of God, if you want the power of God, if you want the position of God to flow through your life into the the darkness of a broken world, you're going to have to take the path that I'm taking. And the path that I'm taking is the path of self-denial. And I don't know if there's anything harder for a group of human beings than the path of self-denial. Our whole lives, we are taught the opposite of this. Our whole lives, we are taught the path of self-fulfillment. So you're taught that if you're hungry, eat. If you're tired, sleep. If your job isn't satisfying, quit it and get a new one. If your wife or husband isn't meeting your needs, leave them and find a new one. If you have a sexual desire, meet it. If there's an itch, scratch it. Your whole life you're taught self-fulfillment. And Jesus is going to say, no, the way in which the purposes of God, in the position of God, in the power of God flows into the midst of a world that needs God is not through self-fulfillment, and it's not through self-actualization. It is through self-denial. And if I am going to be the leader, then you have to embrace the path as my follower. And the path as my follower is a path that is marked with self-denial. It is the continual choice to willingly lay down that which is rightfully yours for the sake of Jesus and the good of those who don't yet know the Lord. And I love this because Jesus isn't giving the disciples just another hoop to jump through. He's not just saying, hey, here's a religious thing you need to try. Jesus is inviting them to go on the path that he himself has gone on. So you remember Jesus, before he comes to earth as a baby... He's in heaven, fully God, creator of all things. And he's in this place of perfect joy, perfect comfort, perfect worship. He's at the center of all things. Everything that he rightfully deserves is rightfully his in the kingdom of heaven. But it was for the love of God and the good of a world that did not yet know the love of God that Jesus, as Philippians 2 tells us, did not consider equality with God something to be used for his advantage, so he emptied himself, being made nothing, taking on the form of a servant to die on a cross. And you get this picture of Jesus who left the comfort of heaven to be born to unwed teenage parents, to be raised in a small hick town, to spend his entire earthly ministry wandering as a homeless nomad, itinerary preacher only to die on a Roman execution cross for crimes he did not commit and the only thing he owned at his death were the shredded clothes soaked in his own blood that the soldiers would gamble for when he took his last breath. And Jesus said, I want to show you just how far the denial of self is willing to go for the sake of God and the good of those that don't know him and this is the path I'm inviting you to take. And I go, is there anything harder than this? I think self-denial comes in a variety of forms. I think about one of my my good friends. He lives in Memphis. He and his wife, Casey. Four years ago, they they decided that when it comes to their possessions, God was calling them into a place of self-denial, that they needed to learn how to live with less so that the people around them could see more of God. So Josh and Casey and their two toddlers moved out of their comfortable Suburban home with their comfortable middle-class income, and they moved into a 900-square-foot house in the heart of the Memphis ghetto. They moved into this 900-square-foot house with two kids. There was not a working kitchen, and there was not a working bathroom for two months. Those of you that are parents of small kids, can you imagine what it would be like to exist one day with dirty diapers and not having a bathroom that works or a kitchen that works? They did this for two months. And I just want to make something clear. Let's get, all get on the same page for a moment. Is wealth wrong? Absolutely not. Are possessions wrong? Absolutely not. Did Josh and Casey have the right to enjoy that which was rightfully theirs? Of course they did. But they began to understand that the path of their leader demanded that they take a different journey as his followers. And they really began to to believe that if they gave up that which was rightfully theirs for the good of Jesus and the sake of those around them, that people would see the goodness of God. And sometimes self-denial looks like the, the, the denial of ourself in regards to our possession. Sometimes the denial of ourselves looks like the denial of ourselves in regards to our time. So I think about a young mom in our church. I won't say her name because it would embarrass her. Two small kids. There's no job on planet Earth harder than being a mom. Just this just relentless exhausting job of being a mom and if anyone has the right to take a nap in the afternoon if anyone has a right to look after themselves if anyone has the right to look out for number one it would be a mom but this woman in our church has decided that's not the way of Jesus and so two afternoons a week she keeps her time open so that people from church can come over to be mentored and discipled encouraged and loved on and in between changing diapers and making bottles In dealing with the needs of her needy children, she opens up her home to deal with the needs of needy people. I go, Is it her right to use the time the way she wants to? Of course it's her right. But she understands the path of her leader is the path that lets go of the rights for the good of Jesus and the sake of those that don't know him. Sometimes self-denial looks like giving up your money. Sometimes self-denial looks like giving up your time. Sometimes self-denial looks like giving up your comforts. Think about Jordan Collins, who's a part of our church family. He worships over at Marathon. His parents are two of the most extraordinary people I've ever known. They've raised these two incre- or three incredible boys. They've lived for 22 years in South Africa as missionaries. Recently, their youngest son, Jordan, just got married. They're officially empty nesters. Everyone's out of the house. And they have earned the right. They have raised three godly kids. They have earned the right to take a break to breathe, to enjoy what God has given them. But do you know what they've decided to do with what they have rightfully earned? They've just brought eight babies into their house that have been abandoned by their parents. And they've decided to start the work of parenting all over again. But not with one kid or two kids or three, but eight kids. I go, did they have to do that? Of course not. Was it their right to enjoy the empty nest years? Of course it was their right. But they understood that the one who is leading their lives, the path that he is taking is the path of self-denial. I'll give you a few more examples. Think about a young girl in our church, a young woman in our church, beautiful young woman, amazing young woman, talented young woman. At one point, almost every guy in our church wanted to date, or some of you probably still do. And, and, and she just kind of sensed that God was calling her to go deeper. And she didn't think she needed to give up marriage forever, but she thought she needed to give up marriage at least for a couple of years, give up dating for a couple of years. And so she decided, I'm going to give up pursuing a man for a couple of years. I'm just going to work on my walk with God. And everyone thought she was crazy. Her dad was just ticked off. He just sent, spent a lot of money to send her to a Christian university to find a husband. And, and it hadn't worked. He's like, what are you doing? And, and, and I go, was it her right to be married? Yes. Was it her right to find love? Yes. Was it her right to find the pleasure of an earthly companion? Yes. But as she began to watch the path of her leader, she knew that it's, there's a joy that's found in the denial of what is rightfully yours for the good of your leader and the sake of those who don't yet know the Lord. Or think about a guy in our church who's given up the, the right of his own safety and comfort. Right now as we speak, he is working secretly in middle eth- in Middle Eastern countries, working with underground church plants in areas that could cost him his life if he's caught doing what he's doing. Does he have the right to be safe? Of course. Does he have the right to be secure? Of course. But the more he kept watching the path that his leader walked, even to the end of his own excruciating death, it's given him the vision for the life that he has to take as well. And Jesus says, whoever wants to be my follower, he says, you deny yourself. You lay down that which is rightfully yours for the sake of Jesus and for the sake of those who don't yet love Jesus. And I go, Jesus could stop here because this is like a hard one, right? But he keeps going. He says, it's not just that you deny yourself. Look at verse 34. He says, you have to take up your cross and follow me. And I want to be abundantly clear because there's some weird teachings in regards to the cross. I want to make sure we understand it. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27 says that Jesus went to the cross, and when he died, he died once and for all for the sins of humanity, sins past, present, and future. That when Jesus died, he took the judgment that was rightfully yours. Jesus took it upon himself, and then on his cross, he took something that you and I both deserved, okay? But sometimes in the midst of that teaching, we misunderstand. Uh, the the call to follow Jesus in the same way. I remember growing up and I'd hear people say things like, Jesus went to the cross so I don't have to. Just raise your hand if you ever heard something like that, that Jesus went to the cross so you don't have to. And I go, the, the problem with that is the scriptures. And the problem with that is the words of Jesus himself. Jesus says, I'm going to take the judgment of God on the cross so you don't have to. But to be my follower means you embrace the reality that there will be many crosses that will cross your path as you follow me. Do you remember the words of Jesus in John chapter 16? He says, in this world, you're gonna have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Jesus does not go on to say the thing that we want him to say. He doesn't say, in this world, you have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. And now there's no more trouble. Jesus says, no, listen, your path is going to be full of crosses. And until you understand that there is something about the crosses in your life that form Christ in you and display Christ through you for the sake of those that are around you, you will be tempted to misunderstand the love of God for you and the purposes of God in you and through you for the sake of those around you. So let's unpack this for just a minute. Jesus says, be my follower, deny yourself, embrace the crosses that will come your way. In other words, your life will be... Full of suffering and death and humiliation and rejection and pain. And those moments of suffering and death and rejection and humiliation and pain are not God's judgment on you. It's the places in which God himself begins to journey with you. And unless you understand that the work of God in you and through you requires a cross... When the crosses begin to come, you will question your God. Have you ever had one of these moments where something bad happens? Your daughter dies of cancer. You lose a parent in a car crash. You lose a job that you rightfully deserved. And have you ever had a moment of immense suffering come into your life and you instantly start going, God, why are you mad at me? God, where are you? Like, if you've ever felt that, you're the most normal human being on planet Earth. That's a normal thing to, to have fear and wrestling and heartache in the midst of facing your own crosses. But that feeling of wondering whether or not God is judging us as we're carrying our cross is an indication that you've misunderstood the journey of discipleship. And hear me clearly. All pain has not come into your life because of God. God. But for whatever reason, God does allow you to face all pain that has come into your life. And I don't understand the complexities of that. But Jesus says, I can use it. And there's something about you embracing those moments of suffering and hardship and pain that will form Jesus in you and help the world around you see Jesus more clearly. You see, for the disciples, when they heard Jesus talk about the cross, they were not thinking about a religious emblem or a religious symbol. You know, even if you're not a Christian, if you see a cross, if you see that kind of tattoo on some woman's back at Panama City Beach, you see that cross, or if you see it on a billboard, or you see it on a necklace, you instantly connect that cross with Jesus, even if you don't love and know Jesus. Because the transformative work of Christ on that cross has taken something as repulsive and gross and offensive as a Roman execution tool and has turned it into a symbol of hope. What a powerful thing God has done. But when the disciples heard of the cross for the first time in the teachings of Jesus, what they heard him saying is that in order to be my follower means you will be humiliated, rejected, misunderstood, broken, suffering, and some of you will even die. And Jesus says, it's not a question as to whether or not the cross will come. The question is, will you follow your Christ when the cross has come? And think about the ways that we see this play out in our own church. A few years ago, Josh and Jenny Stites, if you know them, just an amazing couple. They had a son who was born four months premature. We weren't even sure if he was going to be able to live the moment he was born. And for four months, just kind of wrestling with, is this kid going to make it or, or not? And all of a sudden, we saw this couple who we love dearly faced with the cross. If you knew Josh and Jenny before, they were amazing men and women of God. If you know them after, they're like different level now because we've watched them carry a cross. We've watched them walk in pain. We've watched them walk with suffering. We've watched them watch with doubt. We've watched them walk with fear. And there's something about your crosses that will form Christ in you because you will begin to identify with the Lord himself who carried his own hardship on his back up a hill for people that didn't respect or love or appreciate him. But it's not just that the cross would form that in them. It's that all of a sudden people around them would see the beauty of Jesus through them. And people in our church during that time as Josh and Jenny were carrying their cross, people were going, wow, there's a joy in them that we've never seen. There's an honesty in them that we've never seen. There's a frustration in them that we've never seen. And yet Jesus is more clear than we've ever seen. So often we want God to use our strengths, in our personality, in our abundance, to work as a billboard for God's kindness in the world. But So often God's going to use your pain. And it will be in the dark night of your souls that you'll find the goodness of your Christ and that your friends will see Him for who He really is. And Jesus says this is the path. It's the path of self-denial. It's the path of embracing the cross. It's the path of laying down your view of what makes life good. He keeps going. Look down at verse 35. He says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever wants to lose their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And I want to be really clear about what Jesus is not saying here so we can actually hear what he is saying. Jesus is not saying that in order to find God, you have to physically die Jesus is not a cult leader. He's not organizing a mass suicide here. That doesn't line up with any of Jesus' teachings anywhere else, especially in the Gospel of Mark. There are times in the human experience, I mean, we're seeing this happen all over the world right now, where people are losing their life for the Gospel, right? People are being beheaded. People are dying, and they they are living this out very real and very true and very practically, but what Jesus is saying here is so much bigger than that, and it so far extends the things that our brothers and sisters in the Middle East are facing right now. The word that Jesus uses for life here, it's not the typical word that's used for life. In fact, uh, most times in the original language, the word that was used for life was the word Zoe. But the word that Mark uses here to describe what Jesus is trying to teach is the word Psyche. And it's, it's the same word that we get our word psychology from. And I think what Jesus is trying to say is he's trying to say, until you let go of the life you think you deserve, you will never be free enough to take hold of the life that you were made for. Until you let go of the life you think you deserve, you will never be free enough to take hold of the life that you were actually made for. If we found you on the street on Wednesday of this week, and if you didn't think it was a spiritual conversation, if I just asked you, hey, what do you think makes a happy life? All of us would begin to list things out. And the truth is, every one of us has a list of things that we believe we need in addition to Jesus to have a good life. I need this type of family. I need this type of career. I need this type of spouse. I need this type of religious experience, whatever it may be. And Jesus is going to say, it's not until you put to death your view of what you think it means to live that you will be set free enough to actually live. Think about one of my good friends who was a part of Ethos for several years. When he was in his mid-20s, he and I would grab lunch and coffee about once a month, and it was the same conversation. It was like living in Groundhog's Day, every, that movie, if you've ever seen it, it. was every time we'd get together, he was like just striving for three things. The first thing he really wanted was a wife. He, like every time we get together, he's like, Dave, I need a wife so badly. I, I need a companion. I need a friend. I, I want to be in love. I want to be able to have sex and not feel guilty about it. You know, just some of you are right there. You know the feeling, right? He's like, he's like, I need a wife. I need a spouse. The second thing that he wanted was like the perfect job. He's like, Dave, I hate my job. I want to make more money. I want to have more, you know, I want to be able to use my gifts. I want it to be all fulfilling. I also want it to be super flexible. So I want to make a lot of money. I want to be all fulfilling. I want to be able to travel the world six months a year. My boss not care. I'm like, good luck, bro. That doesn't exist, you know. But he needed the job, the perfect job. He wanted the wife. He wanted the job. And I always love the third request. And he's like, and I need God to give me all of this in Middle Tennessee because my my brothers and my sisters and my nephews are around here. And I, I want to stay close to family. I just want to ask you a question. Were any of those things sinful or wrong? Of course not. Is it good to want a spouse? Yeah. Is it good to want a great job that's fulfilling? Yeah. Is it good to want to be near your family? Yeah. But it was in the midst of the pursuit of those things that the Lord began calling him to something bigger and more beautiful and more bold than that. And he understood that in order to step into the life that God was making him for, he was going to have to put to death the life he thought he deserved. He's going to have to let go of that dream of financial security. He's going to have to let go of that need for a wife. He's going to have to let go of that need to live near his family because the calling of God upon him was going to take him around the world. A few months ago, I was sitting down eating lunch with my buddy. His life has played out in some unbelievable ways, and God has done some remarkable things. And I said, if you could go back to where you were four years ago and get the wife and get the job and be near your family, would you do it? And he said, not a chance. Because the joy of God that I've discovered on the path of self-denial and of cross-carrying and of putting my vision of life to death has given me a picture of Jesus that has so far exceeded what I knew when I was just sitting still and pursuing my comfort. And Jesus says, if you want to keep climbing the mountain... It's not enough to embrace my position. It's not enough to embrace my purposes. You have to embrace the path that I'm taking because it's on the path of the Messiah that the purposes of the Messiah begin to work through ordinary people like you and I to change a very dark and broken and hopeless world. And I just stand before you confessionally going, how hard is this? Like, I'm 0 for 3. Like, I I don't think I can do any of these very well. I'm not very good at self-denial. I'm, I'm like selfish and fearful and overextended. Truth is, I don't always trust that God is gonna do right by me if I really put my life in God's hands. <laughs> I go, I'm no good at self-denial. I'm no good at embracing my, my crosses. The very few times that I've faced real suffering in my life Man, I have I've been terrified. I've questioned God. I've been fearful. I haven't known what to do. Like, I'm terrible at embracing the cross. O oh, for two. How about O oh, for three? I'm no good at putting to death my vision of what Sydney and I need to have a good life. I hate to say this, but I've got Jesus in a list of about 14 things that I need to live the life that I think Jesus wants me to live. And Jesus says, no, it's not until you go on the path. It's not until you lay it aside that you really begin to experience it. And this isn't me just trying to end the sermon. I'm like legitimately asking you, you are my spiritual community. You are my friends. You are my brothers and sisters. And so I'm asking, if you ever pray for me, if you ever happen to pray for my family, could you just please pray that God would make Jesus beautiful enough and clear enough in my life that I'd be willing to take the path that he took? That God would give me such a vision of him that I could take my family down the path of the Messiah. A path that is very uncomfortable to travel at times. This is not just the path of the super spiritual or of the exceedingly obedient. This is the path for anyone interested in walking with the Lord. Do you remember the story of Abraham and Isaac? Isaac. Abraham's life was just one big journey up the mountain, right? And he comes to the end and God looks at him and he says, hey, if you want to keep making the climb, I'm going to invite you to even deny yourself to lay down the very thing you think you need in order to fulfill my promises to you. And it was in the denial of himself in the embracing of the cross and in the death of his vision for what it meant to be alive that he picked up the life that he has made for. In Abraham's journey, in the disciples' journey, in Jesus' journey, are not just put in the Bible to inspire you or to inform you, they're in the Bible to invite you into the radical ways of the leader who's inviting you to follow. And I guess I wanna just challenge you, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're a Christian in here today, I wanna give you just one simple homework assignment. I want to invite you to go home this week. And before you take any actions, you know, sometimes like we hear the teachings of Jesus and we get really convicted, we get all fired up and it's like, I'm going to become a martyr. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to sacrifice and some of you are going to be tempted to go home and to, to quit your job tonight and to sell all your stuff and to shave your head as a vow of purity before the Lord. And you're going to wake up on Tuesday and you're going to regret it because your head is lumpy and your job was good and, and it's not going to feel very good. And, you know, if Jesus tells you to do that, do that. But before you're quick to become a self-martyr, to deny yourself, before you're quick to go looking for your path, get down on your knees and pray that the Lord would just give you a vision of your leader. You don't need a clearer picture of the path. A clearer picture of the path will not inspire you to follow Jesus. A clearer picture of the path will get most of you to quit. You don't need a picture of the path. You need a picture of the leader. And when the leader becomes beautiful and good and real, you'll have the courage to take the path. Before I met my wife, Sydney, I was scared of commitment. I was scared of marriage. I don't know why, I just was. And then I met her and she was so fine and so beautiful and so wonderful. I thought, you know what? I'm gonna get over the fear of commitment. I can go down that path if she's on the path. And the way that you as the followers of Jesus Take the path of self-denial and cross-carrying and life-sacrificing. It's not by focusing on the path. It's by looking at the one that's walking down the path. But Jesus makes it clear this is where we're going. And I want to invite you this week to just pray, to just ask God, give us a picture of you. Give our church a picture of you. Our culture is, like, changing rapidly. It's not going to be, like, very easy. It's not going to be as comfortable for you to follow Jesus into the future as maybe it has been for you up until this point. And you just have to get okay with that. That's the journey. That's the place we're going. And that's where you'll find God in you and that is where people will see God through you. I just want to challenge you if you're a Christian, just spend this time praying this week, going, God, help us to see you more clearly. Those of you that are not Christians, I want to give you one simple assignment. If, if you're not a Christian, this whole teaching is... Pure insanity. It's like ludicrous. This idea of denying yourself and taking up a cross and putting to death the life that you want for a God that you're not even sure exists, that's just pure madness. And I just want to tell you, I totally understand that. I really understand that. Before I followed Jesus, this teaching made no sense to me. So I want to challenge you this week, before you wrestle with what is the path that you're supposed to take, and before you wrestle with whether or not Jesus is worth going down that path, I want to just give you one question. I want you to wrestle with why is it that Jesus was willing to take this path for you? What is it about you that he found so beautiful and wonderful and loving and good that he would deny himself, that he would take up a cross, that he would do away with his vision of life so that you could know his father forever? What is it about the Lord in all of his goodness that was willing to willingly take the path that terrifies us so that you could know the Father better. It took the disciples three years being in the presence of Jesus, watching His life of self-denial and cross-carrying and life-dying ways before they were willing to believe that He was the Son of God sent from heaven for the sins of the world. And my guess is it'll take a lot of you the same amount of time may take you three or four years of walking with us and doing life with us and watching us carry our crosses and watching us deny ourselves. And I just want to tell you, as long as it takes you to find the Lord who's walking down that path, you're welcome here. You don't have to have it together. You don't have to have it figured out. You are free to doubt here. You're free to question here. You are free to mock us here. You are free... You are free to fight against the ways of the risen Lord as long as you want here. Because I know as long as you do it here, there will be enough cross-carrying and self-denying and life-living that the resurrected Lord become real to you. And any questions you have, let us know. We'll journey with you. We'll love you. Because it's the way of God and how it breaks into the world. So here's my question. Have you embraced the path of your leader? It's one thing to stand and sing about his purpose and his position. It's another thing to say, we want the life that you had, Jesus. Because this is the way the world would be changed. Let's stand. I'm going to pray for us as we take communion.